a most original and creative talent in our business. Would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles? Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. The two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I have my friend John Henderson from This Day in Jack Benny podcast. Um, I'll tell you what, John. Anyway, let's segue back into Orson Welles. And uh, our Orson today, I think, is is a really interesting one. I, I've been saving this one because I wanted to have it when I could talk to more than just me introducing it. And I've got John here to talk about it. This, one, this episode we're going to present today actually has his remembrances of meeting FDR, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, our president for a long time, uh, multiple terms back in the 19, from 1930. Three, I think, until 45 when he passed away. Um, anyway, he would have even been our president longer except for he passed away. Uh, but to have Orson talk about what FDR was like in person and then also talk about what he looked like at the very end. He came and saw his, I think it was, I think it was his inauguration that he saw, that he came and saw, and he just said he looked so kind of gaunt and like he wasn't going to last long, and he didn't, unfortunately, after that. And uh, because, of course, this is 1946 that he's talking about it, so uh, he had passed away a year earlier. But um, of this episode, uh, Orson, what kind of stuck out to you, John? Uh, Well, I got to say, Orson Welles is always good at writing and delivering eloquent, uh, I guess, it's almost like he creates a scene and he drops you right in that scene. So it feels like you're at the inauguration. Uh, so that's really amazing. I thought that was, you know, the that, I thought that was great. And yes. it's really immersive. Um, but I would say my favorite part is his first letter where he reads from the woman who's highly criticizing him. Well, I don't know if maybe, maybe she's not criticizing him. Maybe she's, you know, trying to do a a sideways compliment, but his response I thought was so good because, you know, there's sometimes that I agree with Orson Welles. Sometimes I don't agree with him. And sometimes I don't really understand what he's talking about for whatever reason. (laughs) Maybe it's the historical three ways of looking at it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And, and all three of those things are usually in any given episode. Exactly. (laughs) One topic you'll go, Oh, I totally get where you're going here. And then one topic you'll be like, I don't really agree with him there. And then a third topic will be, well, what is he even talking about? So yeah, it's crazy. Yes. Go ahead. But his comments on how, you know, basically you shouldn't just, you know, find somebody and believe everything they say, but you should, you know, test for yourself and, and, and that sort of thing. I thought those were great comments and uh, his comments at the end about um, the, the people who were told to, I think it was like salute or something like that. And he says, let's hope this is the last time that civilians are expected to act like military. I thought that was a good point and interesting, something you never would hear about no. today because it was just a sort of blip. Yes. And, and lots of times he would, he'll, he'll focus on some seemingly minor thing and to him it will be a big thing. And then he talks about it and you think, oh yeah, that is more impactful or 
whatever than I thought it would be. Uh, and that's why I love, I just love these commentaries because they're 14 minutes, but in 14 minutes, he always goes through at least two subjects, usually three, four, five, six subjects. And you always find at least half of them completely riveting and then and then a few others maybe not as much but uh this one really had me sucked in with the whole fdr and his presentation of that and like you say the the letter and saying uh, i think this is the one where he says uh well if you want to write and get on the show don't be writing just how wonderful i am because i'm not going to read those letters it's going to be the ones that have something to say whether it's criticizing me or something but yeah and and he and he lives up to that. He shares a lot of different things. I, um, a couple of weeks ago, I played one that someone had just written a whole like poem, um, or st- I guess it was a story. And he read their story. Can you imagine sending him in like you know a five page story or something, and then him actually re- he reads it on his commentary? Uh, uh, it would be so exciting for that person to to get to hear his his words with Orson reading them. I mean, because yeah. Who can you have read better than Orson? Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> you can't find a better person to read something than Orson Welles. No. So anyway, I'll let you guys go ahead and enjoy this episode. And uh, really um, wonderful to hear his thoughts on FDR. And I just loved it. Because I haven't, with a lot of people, like with JFK and things, you get a lot of personal folks that have had interaction with him and things that you hear. With uh, FDR, I've never really heard too many folks. I mean, it was long enough ago that people that knew him and, and were of the, that age had passed away and things. So to get a contemporary person that is telling you their thoughts on FDR and their thoughts on actually meeting FDR and seeing him and what he looked like at the end, I think is uh, very enlightening and I love it. So anyway, without further ado, here you go. Orson Welles speaking. Today, another Lear Radio goes to another one of you listeners for sending me a letter I can use on this radio program. Also today, I've got what I'm afraid are some pretty positive opinions on Mr. Truman's advisors in Washington and on the latest shows of Broadway. We'll get to that in just a minute. One of these days, you're going to be interested in buying a fine new radio. And you'll want to be sure it has all the worthwhile new developments that have come to radio over the last few years. You'll want to be sure, too, that the maker has a background of building a substantial, dependable, capable product. This is why we want you to know about Lear. Lear has been making the most exacting kind of radio since 1930, aircraft radios. With this background, plus four years of intensive war work, Lear is now beginning large-scale production on radios you can have in your home. One of the new things Lear radios will have is the unusual recording system, Sound on Tape. It's similar to wire recording, but many steps ahead. Tape costs less, and as used by Lear, does not have to be rewound. As quickly as you can snap a switch, you're recording a child's song, the voices of your friends, or a broadcast from the air. Yes, it's yours for a lifetime if you wish, but if you don't want it, away it goes simply by recording something else on the tape. That's Sound on Tape. And it's but one of the new features you find in Lear radios. We know when you see a Lear radio, you'll say, that's for me. Remember the name Lear, L-E-A-R. Now back to Orson Welles. This Wednesday, he would have been 65 years old. His great high heart stopped beating last April. 
I saw him just before he left for Yalta. And I didn't tell it later to a living soul, but the chill fear settled on me and pressed down hard as we sat talking that I wouldn't ever get to talk with him again. I didn't. Not many days earlier, I'd stood in the snow before the White House to watch the inauguration. I think everybody there was shocked by the way he looked when he came out on the porch, erect and brave as ever on those steel braces, but the face terribly wasted, more old with care and sickness than years. In the cold air, his breath showed thinly and in short, tortured gasps. In the ceremony, the first spoken words were Henry Wallace's. A vice president was swearing in a vice president, and Harry Truman's answer came thinly through the loudspeaker. Thin, I remember, was the word that came to me at that moment. Thin as the chief's breath in the winter morning. There was the speech and the band music. And then I walked back through the snowy streets to the hotel without using the card I had in my pocket for a closer glimpse of the president and the official reception. I guess I was a little afraid of what I'd see. I'm sure I was thinking of the next president and wondering about him. I still am. I knew then, though I didn't want to know it, that a political convention in Chicago for a great hour and the biggest job in history had brought us out of Independence, Missouri, a very decent, very little man. I got to know Mr. Truman as a person pretty well last year. We campaigned a good bit together about the country. There aren't any surprises about him or any secrets. He's just about what you'd guess as a president, though. Well, as I said a minute ago, I'm still wondering, and I guess you are too, concerning Truman the president, we're all from Missouri. This strike business, for example. In spite of the good day news today, the president has been defied by certain sections of big business and labor is standing firm. That's the main picture, and the president's telling his close friends, I've just begun to fight, but so far there's been no action from the White House. Some people are saying the president is waiting for the situation to gel, and some people are saying he's waiting for the jelly to get out of his backbone. Whatever it turns out to be true, it's a fact today that Harry Truman has very few real enemies and very few real supporters. How come? What's the trouble? Well, there's no use trying to figure how things might be going if Franklin Roosevelt were alive to help us celebrate his 65th birthday this week. Franklin Roosevelt's don't come along so very often in the lifespan of a nation. And there's no use blaming Mr. Harry Truman for not being an inspired statesman. No sense either letting the New Deal die by leaving it for dead. The fault, dear Brutus, lies not in our presidents, but in ourselves. Since the incumbent isn't a man for the ages, we'd better be a generation of citizens for the ages, or there won't be any more generations. A.B. A.B. means after the bomb. I remember on that long, lonely walk I took inauguration day through the Washington slush, how Bob Hannigan seemed to be darkening the horizon as a force for political retreat. Shows you how wrong you can be. His influence diminishes daily in the Truman cabinet and Bob, the backroom boy that many of us liked a lot and most of us mistrusted some, emerges as the one instinctive liberal among the newcomers. Accepting Hannigan from where I stand, Mr. Truman's closest advisors look like the biggest aggregation of political fumblers, butterfingered halfbacks and unimaginative stooges Washington has seen in 20 years. 
Hoover's aides were reactionaries, but they were at least, for the most part, competent reactionaries. This new crowd doesn't seem to know where it's going or why. Some of these gentlemen are well-meaning, some of them want to go home, all make a fine fetish of dollar honesty, but as I see it, they lack intellectual integrity. Please consider, from here on in, the words, in my opinion, go with everything I'm saying. I want to talk about Mr. John Snyder, and I'm not going to pull any punches. John Snyder is a mediocre man who spent most of his life at an open desk near the teller's window of a small bank. The very thought of him saying no to the president of U.S. Steel is a joke. Mr. Snyder is loyal to Mr. Truman personally, but he doesn't believe in the president's declared program for full employment, higher wages, and sharp price control. Now, Snyder's main task has been to speed the reconversion of 1,300 principal war plants to peacetime production. Snyder's been in office for about six months, but I find only 100 of the total 1,300 plants have been reconverted to date. And only 200 more, it seems, are anywhere near reconversion. Worse, most of the 100 plants have not been reconverted in such a way as to promote competition and thus increase the flow of goods and hold down prices. Veterans and others eager to launch new businesses are finding it virtually impossible to buy these plants, even though they have the necessary funds. Almost all of the plants have gone into the hands of huge national aggregations of power. In other words, big business. And big businesses bought up most of the hundred plants with a primary purpose of preventing them from going to potential competitors. Already about 40 of these plants have been closed down by these huge concerns. And in some cases, unbelievable as this may sound, there has been the actual destruction of modern machinery. The kind that might turn established industries upside down. This handling of surplus war plants by Snyder is without doubt his biggest but least known blunder. I wish I had more time for Mr. Snyder, but I see I don't, not today, and I won't be able to take up lumbering John Steelman either. He's the labor advisor to the White House, or the court jester, Mr. George Allen, that happy-go-lucky director of 20 big corporations, including Tom Girdler's Republic Steel. What I wanted to add up to today is just this. For the sake of the man who would have celebrated this week his 65th birthday. I think that before we start kicking at Truman, we should make our voices heard and help kick out Truman's advisors. Now about these radios I'm giving away for letters I can use on this program. I can use anything in the letters about anything except compliments to me. To prove which statement, today's Lear five-tube table model goes to Mrs. Charles R. Wilson, who wants to know if I am a phony. Well, I may be, Mrs. Wilson, but I'm willing to let you call me one on my own program and you get the prize for doing it. How are we, you ask, we who are referred to as the little people, to know about things that look like posing in persons who have become what is known as public figures? In other words, can we let down the guard and believe in you? Unquote. To that good question, Mrs. Wilson, there's only one good answer. Never believe in us. Never let down the guard. You may, if it pleases you, agree with me, but there's no point in your believing me. I don't ask you to accept anything on faith. Mrs. Wilson, doubt is an American talent, and if you believe anything, believe in yourself. Never, never, never let down your guard. Mrs. Wilson, the German people, the Italians, and the Japanese, they let down their guard. Free peoples cannot hand over their judgments, their final evaluations, to any spokesman, authorized, official, sponsored, or impromptu. Always suspect me and suspect everybody else you hear on the radio, Mrs. Wilson. That happens to be the little lesson I tried to point out when I made some years before the 
Radar contact with the moon, a certain notoriously unfounded report concerning interplanetary communication. You know, we were talking a while back about the man who would have been 65 years old this Wednesday. I remember a flattering joke he once made. Orson, just between us, said Franklin Roosevelt, you and I are the two best actors in the world, but we have different parts to play. You scare the people, and my job is to pour oil on the troubled waters. Well, Mrs. Wilson, I tell you that I do this radio program because there's certain things I want to scare you about. I want to bring to your attention certain wrongs, but don't swallow that hole. Maybe I do it for the money. Maybe I'm trying to build up a following so I can seize the government and enslave you. If I make you believe me, I'm the merest demagogue. My purpose, I tell you, is to help you think about certain things. If I succeed in this, I'm not so much a phony as what I say I am, which is always, my dear madam, your obedient servant. And now your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. Now just a few more words about the new Lear radios. They're radios made with that respect for the highest type of manufacturing that Lear has learned through 16 years of building ultra-fine radios for aircraft. The line of home radios that Lear is now making offers models to suit every taste for fine home decoration, every requirement for outstanding performance, and every pocketbook. Among the sets will be magnificent console radio phonograph combinations which will have television, the new sound-on-tape recorder, FM, and shortwave. Some will have an entirely new and exclusive remote tuning control, which lets you select any station on the dial from across the room. The finest of these in a choice cabinet and equipped with everything will cost about $500. Then there are other models that range in price all the way down to the competent, good-looking table model that sells for about $19.95. But no matter what you pay for a Lear radio, it will have the proved design and the superlative workmanship that have built the fine reputation of Lear Incorporated. Of course, the best way to appreciate what Lear radios can do is to see and hear the sets themselves. We expect that you'll be able to do that soon as more and more dealers get them. We'll keep you posted because we know that when you look at and listen to a Lear radio, you'll be convinced that here is a radio that gives you the most for your money. Remember the name, Lear, L-E-A-R. And now back to Orson Welles, whose views and opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent those of Lear Incorporated. Well, I'm speaking to you nowadays from New York, and this week I've been on quite a play-going kick, three openings since last Sunday. In the first, Nellie Bly, which cost $3,000. Mr. Victor Moore, that hauntingly attractive artist of comedy, is trapped as on a sinking ship. An affectionate first-night audience cheered him to the echo on his way down. Nor was Mr. Moore's agelessly athletic sparring partner a deserter. William Gaxton seems to be embedded in Broadway, much as the creatures of another age, casualties of some glacier, are found immortally rampant in ice, and he was no more absent from this event than is his shadow, which he, Mr. Gaxton, has been boxing successfully to the accompaniment of hit tunes for something only a trifle short of eternity. Here, however, his lusty enthusiasm served merely to underscore the lack of score. But Bill gets another merit badge for effort. So does the audience, as a matter of fact. Never did so many try so hard to like so little. This lamentable flutter came in on Monday like a lion, the MGM lion, and Tuesday and Wednesday brought us very ordinary plays with extraordinary performances, real show savers by Louis Calhoun and Dorothy Gish in the first and by the Lunts in the last. 
Lou Calhoun's beautifully organized portrait of Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes is worth your patience for all the sentimental meanderings he's called upon to support. In the play, every scene seems to be written for the immediate preparation of a final curtain. It wouldn't be accurate to say that the magnificent Yankee, which is the name of the play, never seems to end, but it is quite true that it always seems to be ending. That Mr. Calhoun manages to make a nourishing night of this is a real tribute to his craftsmanship. The Lunts came back to Broadway in a vehicle that runs downhill starting from nowhere, but Lynn and Alfred are experts in making you forget such trifles as the mere absence of a play. I cannot believe that my children will live to see two more resourceful entertainers in a playhouse. Let's hope for playwrights, when playwrights are as stimulating as Lynn and Alfred Lunt, impromptu. God bless them, and now my time's up. Let me come a call again next week, and thanks for this time. This is ABC, the American Broadcasting Company.